Have you ever heard of uh, C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis had an autobiography that he wrote, and it was called Surprised by Joy. It's an interesting book. One of the things in the book that's most fascinating to me is that C.S. Lewis was an agnostic. He was a skeptic. He was an unbeliever. He was an agnostic. And the thing that drew him to Christ was his own inexplicable longings that were aroused in him as a child. And in his case, because he was a literature professor, he loved great English literature, it was, it was song and it was literature that aroused the great longing in him. It's interesting because it was his longings that, that led him uh, to Christ, that led him to, to at least begin to seek the Lord. And today, we want to begin a new series of messages called Longings, and today's message, Longings, The Way to God. Our text, a little bit later on, is going to be in John chapter 4. And we're going to talk about this. You have longings, deep, persistent longings that you've had since you were a child. And these longings just don't go away. These longings can draw us away from God, or these longings can draw us to God. So C.S. Lewis, in his book Surprised by Joy, uses this German idea, Zenzucht, meaning intense longing. He talks about it a lot in his writings, and by which he's just talking about times in his life when he had powerful desires that he really couldn't fulfill on earth, powerful longings that were kind of aroused in something, whether it was great music or whether it was literature or whether it was a mountainscape or looking on water or, or marital uh, uh, love, that stirred up these powerful longings, but the longings couldn't be fulfilled. So we want to talk about these, these longings that we have. Someone has said longings are the umbilical cord that ties us to the higher life. In other words, uh, our, our, what I want to show you in the Bible today to begin our series is that your longings are not bad things that were intended to draw you away from God, but your highest longings are God-given good things that are intended to draw you to God. And I want to show you that really clearly in Scripture. Longings can draw you toward life, or, they, or your longings can draw you toward death. Your longings can draw you to God, or your longings can draw you away from God. I know you can't read this, but I I have it here so I don't have to put it in my notes. This is from a sermon that C.S. Lewis gave, the fellow I was talking about there at the beginning of the message. And here's what he says. What he's going to say in this, I'll read the quote to you because it's lyrical. But what he's going to say in this quote is just this. Jesus, when he appeals to us to follow him, he appeals to those longings. He appeals to our desires. He appeals to our desires for joy, satisfaction, meaning fulfillment, longing. He un, and he will say unblushing promises of these things. And so we don't apologize for this. It's actually not the way, it's not ultimately designed to be the way away from God. It's designed to be the way to God. And here's how he says it. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord, Lord finds that our desires are not too strong, but they're too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. This famous quote from the sermon called The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. Basic idea, 
is the longings are put there by God to draw us to God that God intends to fully, completely, and totally satisfy the deepest human longings. And when we settle for something else, we're far too easily pleased. Now, if you want to take your Bible and go to John chapter 4, you know this story very well. And so I'll just uh, read a bit of it. This is Jesus in John chapter 3. What's John chapter 3 famous for? He has a meeting, uh, a personal encounter in John chapter 3 with a man who is a religious man. He's a wealthy, uh, high-positioned, highly regarded, righteous, self-righteous, religious guy. That's in John chapter 3. It really couldn't be any more different in John chapter 4. He's going to have another encounter. But the encounter that he has in John chapter 4 is with a woman who's well-known for being immoral. And on top of that, she's, she's a Samaritan woman. And you've been to Sunday school, most of you, and you know that the Jews had this hatred or dislike or this prejudice against the Samaritans. If you've been to Sunday school, you know that the Jews would often travel around Samaria rather than going through Samaria because they just didn't like that neighborhood, right? And we know in this story that Jesus goes, he's compelled to go into Samaria, and then at midday, he's thirsty, it's hot, in the heat of the sun, it's the sixth hour, noon, he meets a woman at the well. So this is the famous story of the woman at the well. Bible scholars, Sunday school scholars will always tell you, right, that the reason the woman is at the well at noon is because she's a woman of ill repute who can't hang out with the other ladies that come early in the morning when it's in the cool of the day. And so Jesus has just crossed incredible barriers, geographical barriers, religious barriers, social barriers. He's compelled to go and meet this woman, and the woman is characterized by something very interesting. We call her the woman at the well. We just, we just kind of trashed her, right, called her immoral. But let's just read how Jesus deals with her in John chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus uh, made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed to Galilee. So he's going south to north. And he needed to go through Samaria. It was as if he was compelled to go through Samaria. And he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well about the sixth hour. This is noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Jesus would not have had anything to get a drink with. So he's tired, he's thirsty, he's alone, and the woman comes and he he asked her for a drink. And, you know, in so doing, as you know, if you studied this before, he seriously crossed these social boundaries, talking to a woman, talking to a Samaritan woman, a Jewish man, a Jewish man, talking to a Samaritan woman, um, a woman that's not just a woman, but a woman that probably has a reputation for immorality. This is, um, he's compelled to go here, and now he breaks this convention. It's a radical thing that Jesus does, an unusual thing that Jesus does. And so it's just, it's a surprise to her. In verse 8 it says, His disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. The woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus answered uh, and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So it's just, just a beautiful story about Jesus meeting a woman 
who has some powerful, powerful needs that he's seen, he can see that she is thirsty. And this is not just physical thirst that he's talking about, right? He's talking about living water so that you will never thirst again. He's talking about something much deeper than that. He's talking about what lies at the root of her joy, what lies at the root of her satisfaction, what lies at the root of her longing. Don't you just love this about Jesus? When he comes into a room, he goes directly to the person with the greatest need at the time. And he knows their need and the gentleness. You know, it would have been, if you're Jesus and you know all about her, you could have just walked up. He could have walked up and he could have said, stated the obvious, I, you're an immoral woman, aren't you? And that would have freaked her out. She was like, how did you know that? But he didn't say that, did he? Essentially, really, his actual first words was, I'm thirsty. But the thing that he was getting at was that he knew she was thirsty. In other words, he knew that she had deep and persistent longings in her soul that she, was, that she was trying to plug with other things. He knew that about her, and he gently just said, you're thirsty, aren't you? And if, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me, and I, would, I could make it so that you would never have that thirst or longing or that hunger or that thirst in your soul again. That's beautiful, isn't it? The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and livestock? And Jesus said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. This is an interesting passage there. He says, you'll have a, a, a fountain flowing out of the inside of you. What does that mean? Zip. That kind of goes over the head sometimes, right? What did Jesus mean? It was kind of a metaphor, obviously. He was talking about something deeper than physical thirst. He was talking about her longings, her meaning, her significance, her purpose in life, her sense of fulfillment. And he was saying, if you believe in me and who I am, trust me and follow me, I will satisfy the thirst of your soul. He says this over and over again. John picks up on it, and he weaves it beautifully and poetically into his narrative in the Gospel of John. The Apostle John, this is what we're going to see today. What what I'm intending to do is to prove to you just using this series, so we'll talk more about this stuff, but I want to prove to you just using the Gospel of John primarily, I want to prove to you that Jesus really does appeal not just to give people eternal life, like follow me and you're not going to burn in hell. That's true, but it's lots more than that. He calls it eternal life. It's an escape from condemnation and punishment in hell. But he also calls it abundant life, which is like a life that's flourishing and full and satisfying. So he's appealing to these deep heart longings in John chapter 7. And there's an interesting setting to this, which we won't go into, but it would be powerful to study. John 7, in verses 37 through 39, he says, and he's responding to something that's happening. If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, out of his heart, out of his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. And he's referring to the Holy Spirit, who hadn't come yet in terms of indwelling every believer. But do you see what I'm saying? When Jesus said follow me, he didn't just say follow me so you don't go to hell. That was true, but there was a lot more to it than that. 
said, follow me and you will have your thirst of your soul satisfied. You'll have the hunger of your soul satisfied. I will meet your longings in a deeper and more complete way than you could any other way or any other time. John 7, 37 through 39. So what he's really saying is, is, is this. Without Jesus, there is no life. Without Jesus, there is no eternal life. Without Jesus, there is no abundant life. Without Jesus, there is no fullness of life. Without Jesus, there is no ultimate fulfilling satisfaction. And so the woman at the well, without Jesus, Jesus says, you can't have life if you're a self-indulgent sinner. You know, in John in chapter 4, he goes on and he says in, in verse uh, 15, the woman said, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus says, go call your husband and bring him here. She says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you've well said you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In, in that you spoke truly. And she says, I perceive you're a prophet. That was an amazing encounter. It was gentle, but it was honest. It was straightforward, and it was indirectly direct. Go get your husband. Oh, wait, you don't have a husband, do you? And, and essentially, to kind of decode this, Jesus is, is not there going, hey, you know you're about to burn in hell because you're an immoral woman. You're a whore, you know. You better turn this thing around. better stop being bad. better stop sleeping with men. You're going to hell, you know. It's just not what he said. It, it, essentially, to decode this, he said, no man that you've ever tried to find fulfillment with has really given you the fulfillment you hungered for, has he? At this point, I like to tell so many women in our culture have been mistreated and so many women in our culture have been disappointed and so many women in our culture have been abused and so many women in our culture have been abandoned. I love to tell women there is one man who will never abuse you, never abandon you, never misuse you. There is one man, his name is Jesus. That's true for men and women, boys and girls. There's really only one person, Jesus Christ, who can fully satisfy the longings that you have in your heart. And that's what he's saying in this beautiful story. And that's what we've got to get through our hearts. It's interesting. Without Jesus, there's no life for self-indulgent sinners is kind of the message of the encounter in John chapter 4. Without Jesus, there's no life no fulfillment of longings for sinners who are self-indulgent. But if you back up to John chapter 3 and you see the subtle literary thing that John does, he's saying without Jesus there's no life for self-righteous sinners either. Because with, with, John, or with John, when he meets with Nicodemus, Nicodemus has got it put together in terms of the keeping of the law and, and in terms of the, you know, high regard. And he says to him, you're dead, and if you want to be alive, you've got to be born again. He says to the woman at the well, you're thirsty, and you're going to die of thirst unless you come to me and have the satisfaction of your thirst, your spiritual thirst quenched. And he says to Nicodemus, you know, you're a religious, self-righteous guy. You know, you don't sleep with a whole bunch of women, but... You need to be born again. You're dead, and you won't be alive unless you're born again. He says the same thing to self-indulgent sinners 
that he says to self-righteous sinners, and one of the devil's best tricks is to get the self-indulgent sinners to look across the aisle at the self-righteous sinners, and the self-righteous sinners to look across the aisle at the self-indulgent sinners, and none of them to come to Jesus to find not only eternal life, but abundant life, fulfilling life, to have our longings fulfilled. I heard once of a family that kind of just didn't get it. You know, they were religious, <laughs> they were kind of legalistic, but they really just didn't get it. So they had rules on Sunday. They had a pool, a swimming pool at their house, a nice deep end with a diving board, shallow end. They said on Sunday, you, uh, they restricted their family. They said you can swim, but you can't jump in a deep end. So that's just their rule. No swimming in the deep end. On Sunday, if you want to wade in the shallow end, you can do that. But you can't swim in the deep end. You know, because there's a Bible verse on that one, right? It reminded me a little bit of going on a trip to Mexico. And uh, the leader was really high control about everything. And we're on this trip to Mexico. And, and there's this hacienda that we're visiting. And it's part of our ministry. Our ministry owns this place uh, that I was in at the time. And, and it's just a beautiful marble staircases and... It was just a beautiful big hacienda in, uh, near um, Lake Chapala in Mexico. And it had a big pool, had a, had a beautiful decorative large swimming pool embedded in the stairs. You guys remember this? Embedded in the stairs as you walked up the stairs to go into this hacienda. Uh, there was this beautiful pool. It was just the feature. It was like the jewel of the property. You just see that pool. It was hot in Mexico, right? And we had a busload of kids, like 40, 50 kids. They were hot. We were hot. The, the air conditioning stopped working, and we were hot. So when we got to this hacienda, everybody looked at that pool, and we all just kind of thought, man, there's a pool, which is made for swimming, right? And, uh, but the, the organization that we were in, I kind of knew that wasn't going to happen because it was kind of like nose to the grindstone and all of that, you know, and we had to wear a suit, we had to wear a suit in Mexico because the Bible says that, right? You know, you have to wear a suit. And, you know, all the other people in Mexico, were, do you, remember, you guys remember this? They would be out, and these girls would have these beautiful flowery light dresses that they wore. Remember that? And the guys looked relaxed. You know, they had jeans and cowboy boots and plaid shirts all over Mexico. And not us, man. We looked like we came from Oxford directly to Mexico. We had to... We had the navy blazer and the regimental striped tie, just like Jesus wore, and the gray slacks, you know. And we're out there, you know, and, and, and everywhere we go in Mexico, we're just we're, we're laying sod in Mexico with our blue blazers on. So, you know, you wonder why I have a twitch. That's why my kids are even worse. They're really messed up. Anyway, so I knew that we weren't going to get to swim, and... So the guy that was in charge, I said to him, you know what would be really cool is why don't we have all the kids kind of roll up their pant legs and, and take a picture with them all sitting around the pool. Did you know this? And, and have them dangle their feet in the pool. You know, and just, it'd be really a cool picture, you know. And then we could send it back to the States where we would see that. It was a bunch of joyful kids that were having a great time serving the Lord. And he took me for a long walk and he said, Ken, you don't understand how these things work. What do you think people will think when they get a picture like that? back in the U.S. I was sort of thinking like they would think maybe we were having a good time, but maybe that's not the impression we want to give. Because, you know, when you go off and serve the Lord, you're not supposed to have a good time. Don't ever put your toes in the water. 
Never take off your blazer. Jesus didn't even own one of those things. Right? Isn't that interesting? I think it is. Yeah. It's just, Jesus doesn't want us just to be dutiful, obedient sons. So, I want to, so the language of Scripture that I'm showing you today, the language of Scripture that I'm showing you today is the language of yearning. It's the language of desire. It's the language of longing. It's the language of fulfillment. We're tempted to believe, and Satan wants us to believe, that in order to be really fulfilled, in order to really live, we have to kind of break the rules. We have to kind of go, you know, kind of off the grid with God. We've got to kind of dabble over here so we can really live a little bit and then scurry back so that we don't get fried in hell. You know, that's not what the Bible teaches. The whole language of Jesus is a language of fulfillment of longings. He continually appeals to people to follow him and come to fullness of life and abundance of life and joy. So he, he, again, the unblushing promises of reward is the way C.S. Lewis put it. The unblushing promises of reward. Satan wants you to believe that the way to really live is to go off of God's grid and kind of do your own thing, and that's just a lie. And, and so he, he, he wants us to believe that religion is kind of like just being you know, dutiful and keeping a lot of rules and keeping it serious all the time. But this was Jesus who was anointed with the oil of gladness above all of his fellows. He was the happiest man in the room, according to Hebrews. He endured the cross because he was so filled with joy, the Bible says. He was just so filled with joy, he was able to endure the cross. That's how joyful he was. So uh, Tim Keller has written well on this encounter. And in his book, a really worthwhile book, he, he tells a story, kind of makes up a story, which is useful. He says, imagine a woman, a single mom who's abandoned in her youth, and she has a boy. And the single mom pours her life into this boy. She pours her life into this boy. She goes to work every day in order to make a good life for this boy. And she doesn't really do anything else. And then he makes his way through school, and then finally through college, and then he's, he's in, embedded in a career, and then he does very, very well for himself. And so she's very, very proud of him because he's done well for himself and he's really a very, he's a model citizen. You know, he keeps the law. He does what's right. He's a kid anybody would be proud of. McKellar says, but he never calls his mom. He never writes his mom. He never visits his mom. It's as if she doesn't even exist. He says, and Keller says, is that a satisfying story? And the answer is, well, of course it's not a satisfying story. Because that's not a good story unless that dutiful son also desperately loves his mother. He owes that love to his mother. He owes that affection to his mother. And if that would be true in that little story, how much more true is it of us who have been redeemed by Christ to love him and to enter into life, not just to dutifully keep enough rules to stay out of trouble or to stay out of hell, is Jesus your life is really the issue that Jesus is talking about with the woman. Jesus, interesting, he cares about our longings. I think I've made this point. He cares about our longings. He cares about your longings. He cares about your desires. He appeals to them. He talks about them. That's interesting, isn't it? Sin, somebody said, is what we do when we're no longer satisfied with God. Another way of putting that is sin is what we do when we won't trust Jesus with our life. When we won't trust Jesus with our longings. Sin is what we do when we're tempted to believe that there's a different way to happiness than the way that God has shown, the righteous way, the right way. 
fullness of life, satisfaction of our deepest human longings can only come through Christ. And our way to fulfill our longings, when we violate his way, is what we call sin. That's what sin is. Fulfilling our longings God's way is to have our deeper longings fulfilled, our deepest longings, our highest longings fulfilled. So you see this in, throughout what, when John speaks in John 6, 68, Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. Peter God said, you, we, we can't go away from you because to go away from you is to go away from life. You're, this is a famous quote. Jesus says, thief comes not to, but to, except to steal and kill and destroy, and I'm coming to give them life, and they would have life more abundantly. This is a, what does that mean? Does that just mean you escape hell? What does that abundant life mean? Does it mean you go to lots of church services? That you go to five to seven a week? That you're just always sitting in a pew somewhere, listening to a talk about... Or do you, or do you think maybe that all of life is embedded with the things of God? That everything you see draws you to God. This is what I think what Jesus is saying. So you have overflowing life. Uh, earlier, I think I, I, I read a few weeks ago from uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, in this wonderful chapter on hope, which is a great chapter you should read. Um, a really close friend of mine, a, a mentor and a guy that I think a lot of, um, I, uh, I started to say, I started to quote just a little tiny phrase, and this guy stops and he goes, that chapter is my favorite chapter in Mere Christianity, the chapter on hope. He goes, that's the best chapter in that book. I quoted that to you. The, the, the chapter, I'll just give you this, the chapter is structured around kind of three ways to see life. You know, one way to see life is, well, it's kind of like, and this isn't the way C.S. Lewis says it, I kind of embellished it. One way to see life is, okay, life is a party that I have to be involved in self-indulgence. If I'm going to be happy, I have to indulge myself. And it may not be just like drunkenness or sexual immorality. I might be indulging myself in very, very hard work or, or saving or having a great portfolio or accomplishing a lot of things. But basically, I've got, to, I've got to dig into this life and I've got to get out of this life all the happiness that I can get because this is all there is to it. And then when we find that one thing disappoints, we, we tend to bounce to another thing. It's kind of like Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. And we go from one idol to another. And this person looks at life like life is a party and I've got to kind of milk out of life all the happiness... C.S. Lewis called that, that's the fool's way. Because he's always going to feel disappointment. Then another way to look at it is, well, life is a duty. And C.S. Lewis calls this man the sensible man. And he's the guy that says, those romantic notions were for my childhood. That's what he calls moonshine. It's, uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's inaccessible. Put away your longings. When you listen to a symphony or to a song that's meaningful to you or for some of you, to a country song that's meaningful to you. And it stirs up this deep, powerful desire or longing. When you watch a movie that just has a powerful scene in it, when you are attending the birth of a baby or the funeral of a loved one, or you just look on something beautiful while you're out hunting and you have this deep stirring and longing, the sensible man says, just, just ignore that. Just push it down. You know, there's no fulfillment for that. And then C.S. Lewis says, then there's the Christian way. The Christian way is to see that the longings that we have in this life are the shadows of, of the full life that we have in Christ. That we can pu pull that thread and follow it into Christ. And a deeper life and deeper satisfaction that eventually ends in eternal satisfaction and eternal joy. So you can look at life as a party 
that never really satisfies and you end up sick and you can look at life as a duty that you just have to drudge your way through it, you know, do what needs to be done. But that's going to lead to a powerful disillusionment. In Kenyon College in, in Ohio, near where we started a church, it's a beautiful, it has its roots in uh, the Episcopal Church. It's a gorgeous college. Uh, it's the idyllic college campus, but it's gone powerfully crazy uh, off the page in liberal. And they, they invited uh, um, Daniel Foster Wallace, a graduate, to come back. He's the winner of a Pulitzer Prize. He's a postmodern author. He's a very, very popular author and a best-selling author, and they, they, he was a graduate of the college. They invited him back to give the commencement address. I'm not sure what year. I think it was 2004 or something. But he gave a commencement address at Kenyon College, which was famous, in which, he, and he was very much an unbeliever, in which he said, everybody worships. He literally used the term 23 times in his brief commencement address, worship. He said, everybody worships something. And he said, a lost man, he said, and he's wrestling with this himself. He says, if you, if you worship money, that's going to disappoint you. And if you worship success, that's going to disappoint you. If you, you worship sexuality, that's going to, you know, you're going to get old. Your body's going to you know, wear out. You're going to end up disappointed. He goes, and that's why people come up with this thing about God. And they, and they worship God because they've got to worship something. And everybody has to choose something to worship. If you read it, you kind of get to the end and you go, that's it? Two years later, he took his life. He literally ended the talk by, this is the only thing that keeps us from putting a gun to our head. That's what he says. It's in the talk. It's a sad story, right? But it's, it's been repeated over and over again in the lives of people who just can't find their happiness because they're looking at life as a party or they're looking at life as a duty. It's when we look at life as worship that we begin to find the deepest fulfillment of our deepest longings. Do you see that? And so you have this famous quote that I would repeat here, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. Psalm 37.4 says it this way, delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. The Bible is embedded with a language of desire. Psalm 145.16, talking about the Lord, says he opens his hand and he satisfies the desires of every living thing. You can follow your desires into life. You can follow desires to God. You say, well, how? That's why this is a series. I'll be telling you more about exactly how to do that. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 18, Peter says that we're redeemed from our aimless conduct. Other translation is from our empty way of life. That's what it was. Before you knew the Lord, your, your life was like it was an empty way of life. It was like shooting at what? I don't know. It's aimless conduct. To follow the Lord is to have a clear focus uh, for our life. In John 14, in verse 6, you're familiar with this. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the only way, the truth, and the life. In John 15, 11, these things I spoke to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is just, again, unblushing promises of reward, right? This is Jesus when he's appealing to people to follow him. The first thing he's saying is, I want, he's not saying... I want you, I want, uh, let's, I need, we need to get the sinning stopped. Now that's going to happen, right? But what he's saying is, I want you to follow me to fullness of joy. Sometimes this is the way I say it when I'm talking to young people in particular. I will tell them, Jesus wants you to be as happy as it's humanly possible to be. That's true. That's exactly how Jesus appeals to people. 
Because I want you to be happy. I want you to be fulfilled. I want you to be satisfied. I'm the only way you can. I'm the only way you can have eternal life. I'm the only way that you can have satisfying life when you long for life. We're made for another world. Look at a few more. In John chapter 20, you get to the end of the book now. And John has been making this appeal. You want to live? Jesus is the way to really live. And he gets to the end, and he's, he's wrapping it up. This is the conclusion of the book. And he says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, you will experience life in his name. And he didn't just mean eternal life, though he certainly did mean that. So Jesus says, I'm thirsty to the lady. Jesus didn't ever have to be thirsty. He was God. He didn't ever have to be hungry. He was God. But he chose to come to earth and suffer. And he suffered in a fallen world all the way to the cross, where on the cross he also said, I thirst. Jesus died thirsty. Jesus, that would probably we would want to be reminded that because Jesus died thirsty, because Jesus experienced thirst, we can have our thirst quenched forever. Jesus died on the cross, right? In order that a man like Nicodemus could be born again. And so the heart of this truth is this. Will you trust Jesus with your life? And will you trust Jesus with your satisfaction, with your desires, with your longings? You, you, and, and probably if you're, if you're thinking clearly, you're thinking right now, yes, I will, but I'm going to need some more detail. And that's why it's a series, because I want to come back, I want to show you in Scripture the Scriptures give us very concrete detail about exactly how to do that. How can I have my deepest longings fulfilled in Christ? How can I actually do that? And, we're gonna, we're gonna, and the, the Scriptures give very powerful means, very concrete, specific, practical, powerful means to find genuine fulfillment and, and for, for our longings. As a matter of fact, what the Bible says is that, that God has lavished two things on us. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, it, the Bible says that he's lavished his love on us. Behold, what manner of love the Father has, one, one verse says, lavished on us, which is like extravagant spending. And in, first, uh, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 8, the word lavished is used there. Again, he says, I've, his grace which he lavished on you, his gifts, gifts from God, are lavished on his followers. It's the it's a language of extravagance, right? And his love is lavished on us. We went to Barakel a couple of weeks ago, and and uh, I got to fulfill a dream that I've had for years, and that is that our oldest grandson Kyle, who's nine and a half, he got to go with me uh, and stay with me for the week. And so here's how that worked. Um, I called his mom. And I asked her permission to give him sugar and, and uh, high fructose corn syrup and stuff. And she told me I could, which was a stretch for her. I said, thank you. So we met in Lansing, and I picked up Kyle Kenneth. Isn't that a cool name? And he would sit over there beside me, and we started to make our way up. And I said, man, I'm hungry. I'm just feeling really hungry. He goes, me too. I'm like, we need to eat something. And he goes, yeah. I go, we need to eat something right away. He said, yeah. He goes, what do we want to eat? You pick anywhere you want to go. This is safe with kids usually. 
You know, where are we going to get the macaroni and cheese is the basic deal, right? Like, where, where do you want to eat? He said, I kind of like Jimmy John's. I'm like, that's awesome. We'll go to Jimmy John's. So we go to Birch Run. We pull off. We're going by uh, to go to Birch Run because I'm going to take him to the Eddie Bar outlet because he likes that. And um, that, that, that was a joke. But anyway, so, and we pass the Dairy Queen. And he goes, look, Dairy Queen. I go, that's a good Dairy Queen right there. They got everything. He goes, maybe we should eat there. I go, deal. So we come back to Dairy Queen, and I go, what do you want? And I go, oh, the deal is when you're with Grandpa, you can have whatever you want. Whatever you want. So we go in, and he goes, <laughs> he goes, I hope he holds in this message. I like a six-piece, I, I like six chicken strips. This is six, people. This is like, you can feed a football team with this, you know. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. And, and so he sits down, and the, the boy puts away six chicken strips, and the fries, and the, the Texas toast, and and, the, and the, he does it, you know. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking, do I have enough, you know, towels in the car to clean, clean this up when, when we have? And then, and then I go, well, you know, we'll get our dessert later because we don't want it to melt. And so we had the six chicken strips, and, and, and then that was fun. And, and then I said, well, let's get up there and get something. Let's get a little treat of some kind. So he goes up, and, you know, and he goes, well, can I get a blizzard? Well, you know, when I was a boy, I remember coming home from camp with my grandpa. And my family was very frugal. And so we would go to a, a restaurant they used to have called Burger Chef. It was like Burger King for poor people. And, and, and they had the works bar, which was like cheap burger that you could put a lot of pickles on so that you could sustain life, you know. And then we would eat popcorn when we got home. And we never got the big chef, you know, or the, or the, or the, big, the big, we just never did that. We're going home from camp when with my grandpa and Chuck Zor, another pastor's kid. We're coming home from camp. We stop at the, at the uh, uh, Burger Chef. And uh, I order what I'm supposed to order. You know, my parents told me to order. I like the hamburger. And Chuck Zor had not got the memo on that. And he goes, I like a big chef. I was like, oh, man. My grandpa goes, yeah, he needs the big chef. And then my grandpa, like he's reading my mind, didn't even look at me. He just goes, would you like a big chef too, Kenny? I go, yeah. He goes, yeah, give two big chefs. I thought that was the most amazing thing I ever ate. I just thought that was, I still remember that. Because my grandpa was, said, when you're the grandpa, you get what you want. And so, so I said to Kyle, what, do you, what kind of blizzard do you want? And he told me, and, I, and she goes, what size? I'm like, <laughs> you're with your grandpa. Make it large, which nobody should ever eat. That's just horrible, right? So he ate a lot of that. And you know, then we, stopped, we, we, went over, we went to the North Face, and we found a shirt for him. And he took off his shirt and put the North Face shirt, and he left it on all week long. Until I bought him a Barakel shirt. Then he took it off and he put the Barakel shirt on. And he left it on the rest of the week. And then when we got our quarters, I said, where do you want to sleep? There are three rooms to sleep in. There's my room and the other two little rooms. There's the big important speaker room and there's the little unimportant people room, you know. And I said, which, uh, which room do you want to sleep in? He goes, this one. Take the speaker room, you know. I had, uh, I had these uh, things of all kinds of goodies and treats and snacks and junk and Cheetos and junk like that. And I said, you want me to keep this in my room or do you want to keep it in your room? He goes, I'll keep it in my room. I'm deal. So he's got all the goodies and all the treats and all the snacks. I said to him when we got up in the morning, I got to speak twice a day, but the rest of the time is your time. So whatever you want to do, we're going to do. We're going to go where you want to go. We're going to do what you want to do, whatever you want to do. That dude just about killed me. He wore me out. He never stopped. From archery uh, to riflery to kayaks to canoes to swimming to hike around the lake. Good night. It's no wonder kids are skinny. They never stop moving, you know. It was a great week. 
I just made up my mind when he got to the end of that week, all he was going to remember is me pouring out my love on him. I want him, when he's an old guy, to look back and say, I remember my grandpa, he just poured out love on me all the time. Do you think that any of us are better than God? He lavished his grace on us, lavished his love on us, powerful longings that he put in there to draw us to him and then fulfills them with himself. That's a powerful way to live. Hey, stand up. We should probably go home. But before we...